Our text for this this morning is from uh, Paul's letter to the church at Rome, the third chapter, beginning with the 22nd verse. Paul writes, For there is no distinction, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the sins previously committed. Every religion does two things. First, it identifies some fundamental human problem, some problem that everybody has and that causes, is the root cause for all of the other problems in their lives. Then, that religion, any religion, offers a solution to that problem, which is the, the, the way that people can get around the problems of their lives and finally find happiness and fulfillment. Now, in Christianity, The problem is defined as sin, and the solution is defined as salvation through God's work in Christ. Now, Christianity, despite having lots of different forms and theologies and so on, has generally been pretty well agreed on the nature of this problem, sin. Sin is most fundamentally a wrong orientation of one's life and trust and action. It's an orientation which says, I know what's best for myself, I want what's best for myself, and I am going to go about getting it in the way that seems good to me. It's basically living with oneself and what one wants as the center of one's life, rather than acknowledging that indeed the true center of all reality is God. And therefore, God and what God wants should be the center of your life. Now, we're pretty well agreed, whether Eastern Orthodox, uh, Catholic, Protestant, all of us pretty much agree at least on that much, that sin is the problem. We are self-centered, and by so doing, we bring a lot of suffering on ourselves because we don't trust that God knows what's best for us or wants what's best for us and somehow in our derangement think that we actually know better. And we trust ourselves more than we trust God. So at bottom, sin really is a broken relationship. It's a relationship in which you don't trust God and therefore don't put God at the center of your life. But when it comes to the salvation part, Christianity is not and never has been of one mind about exactly what's up with salvation, how it happens, how we get hold of it. And in the, what to me is the most odd thing I think I've ever learned and the most amazing thing about Christianity is that despite the absolute centrality of salvation as the solution to the problem, the church has never defined one answer to what it is that Christ did to enable our salvation or how we as individuals can lay hold of that salvation for ourselves. And if you want to look to the reason for this, the reason is clear. It's the diversity of scriptural thought on the matter. But if you had to point to one primary culprit, it would be Paul. 
And our text this morning is a marvelous illustration of that fact. If you look at the kind of language uh, that, that Paul uses here, in this one short text, he comes up with three different images for what God has done in Christ. The first one, he says, is that we have been justified by God. Now, justification was a term that was associated with the law courts. A person is on trial, and if the judge pronounces that person justified, that means that person is innocent of the charges and therefore can go free. So one term Paul uses has this courtroom image about being declared innocent. Then, later in the same sentence, he says that we are redeemed by Christ. Now, redemption has a totally different locus in the life of, of the ancient world. Redemption had to do with the slave market and the fact that one could be redeemed or bought back out of slavery and set free. So in this image, we're not innocent in a court. We are slaves who have been set free. And then finally, the last one, Paul says, that, we ha that Christ was put forward by God as a sacrifice of atonement. Now, we all would know that, of course, in the ancient uh, world and in the New Testament, the Jewish people, they did sacrifices for a host of reasons, uh, including how to get right with God once they had sinned. And so a lot of people have misunderstood the meaning of the sacrifice of atonement and think that in somehow the animal that's been sacrificed has died in our place so that we might live. Totally wrong. Could not be more wrong. The, the uh, sacrifice of atonement had nothing to do with an animal dying in your place. And if you look in Leviticus 16, it gives you a very good description of what happened on the Day of Atonement, the chief day in the, in the year, when Israel and the high priest and all would make atonement to God. And notice that phrase, atonement, at-one-ment, to repair the relationship, right, that had been broken with God by sin. Now, the way this was done was that the high priest would sacrifice a bull and take the blood of the bull, go into the Holy of Holies in the temple, the holiest place where the Ark of the Covenant was, which was understood to be where God came when God came down to earth to be present with his people, and he would sprinkle the blood of that bull on the altar, and then would go outside and sprinkle, excuse me, sprinkle it on the Ark of the Covenant, and then go outside and sprinkle it on the Ark. Then he would kill a goat and do the same thing. Go into the Holy of Holies, sprinkle it on the, on the Ark of the Covenant, Covenant, come back out, sprinkle it on the altar where they did the sacrifices. In doing this, the understanding was that the blood of the, of the, uh, of the bull had purified God's holy seat and the altar and the priest, the high priest who offered this purified the person who had been made unclean by their sins. And that the blood of the goat then served as the people's offering to purify God's holy seat, the ark, but also to purify themselves. Then what they would do is they would bring another goat in and all the people would come and lay hands on the goat 
and in so doing, ritually or symbolically transferred their sin and guilt onto the goat, from which we get the term scapegoat, and that goat was led out into the wilderness to die. Finally, then, the people would offer sacrifice, more sacrifices to God now that they had been purified and were fit to be in relation to God again. So it's not about dying for your sins. It's about purification. Once more being sufficiently purified to be able to meet with your God and have this close relationship. Com complicated, huh? So if you notice then, in this one short passage, Paul has used three very different images to describe what God has done in Christ, right? The sacrificial cult of Israel, the religious cult, the slave market, and the law court. Now, because Paul used so many images, and these are only three, he used a, a variety of other ones too, victory and so on, because he used all of these different uh, metaphors, the early church didn't quite know what to do about it when it came to figuring out, well, what does this mean? And so, for example, some theologians latched onto the sacrificial metaphor and blew it up into a full-blown theory, like you see in the book of Hebrews, for example, which comes, is written later after Paul's material, and talks about how Christ was both the high priest who offers the sacrifice on our behalf and also the sacrifice itself, which is offered up to purify the people. Also in the early church, they ran with this notion about uh, being freed from slavery. And this developed in one form into what we call the ransom theory. The idea being here that because we sinned, we have sold ourselves into slavery to the devil, and therefore we live down in, in hell with the devil, and Christ comes along as the perfect human and says to the devil, tell you what, I will pay the ransom on these people, these slaves of yours. If you will let them go, I will give you my perfect self. And the devil says, done. I'd rather have a perfect human in slavery to me than a whole bunch of skanky humans and Christians, and so he lets them go. Then Jesus, sort of like Superman out of the phone booth, goes, aha, I'm not just a perfect human, I'm God too, and you can't hold me. And so in the resurrection, he escapes up to heaven. Now, some folks had a little moral reservations about salvation by trickery. But as they pointed, others pointed out, hey, the devil, through the serpent in Genesis 3, tricked humanity into sinning, fair enough to trick the devil back to save them. That was very popular in the early church, but you don't hear it much these days. <clears throat> and then finally, the, the notion of, of uh, justification. That one's been developed in a host of ways, one of which was by John Calvin, probably the most uh, famous one and the one that has had the most influence on uh, at least American society. <clears throat> in, this notion, in, in this idea, the theory he develops from that courtroom thing, and he was a lawyer himself, so you can see why he might have gravitated towards this. God is the judge. <clears throat> we are on trial for sin. We are guilty of sinning against God and therefore we deserve to be, do to, to be punished and the punishment is being sent to hell. But Christ comes in and says, aha, I'm perfect and I will substitute myself and take their punishment onto myself and therefore they can go free. 
Now, how much that has to do with justice, I'm not sure, but there's this idea that God's the judge and he's, somebody's got to pay for the sin and we'll let Christ do it. So you have all these different theories running around, but again, in its history, the Christian church has never picked one. Calvin's is probably the most popular in America today, and a lot of people think, in fact, that is the way it happened. But the church has never said so. It made a decision on the Trinity, now, that is official Christian teaching. It made a decision on Christ having two natures, being fully divine and fully human at the same time, but never, ever has made any decision on this salvation stuff. And as I said, a good part of the problem was our old friend Paul, who used all these metaphors, but never did anything other than toss them out, never himself developed a theory, a single theory. So that's why we're in the predicament we're in on salvation. We don't know exactly what it was that God did. Were we saved by his teaching, by his incarnation, by his death, by his resurrection? Theories have been created that cover all of those and say this is the point at which salvation became possible. Once he born, was born, as the Eastern Orthodox have consistently said, or once he died, as has been more popular in the West at times, or through his resurrection, as he tricks the devil or wins the victory or however. So we're in a mess on that first question, and there is no solution in sight. People still debate it today like they did in the earliest church. But on the other question of what is it that we need to do, or how is it that I as an individual can get this salvation for myself, there Paul is very clear about what that means. He's not always been interpreted correctly, but he himself is very clear, and this passage is one of the chief places where you see it. Because no matter which one of those theories is actually the one, if indeed there is a one, in each case what Paul says, it is God who has done this. It is God who has initiated the possibility of reconciliation, of repairing this relationship with God. We didn't start it, God did. God provided the mechanism. And then he goes on to say, and this means of becoming one again with God is not something you have to earn. In fact, it's nothing you could ever earn. It is simply a free gift. That's the part we Christians have had a real problem with. We speak the language, we talk about grace, and we talk about gift, but in fact, my hunch, strong hunch, is that the vast majority of Christians who've ever lived really don't buy it. They think somehow, and this is just normal human thinking, we think in the end people ought to get what they deserve. Fundamental human belief, you ought to get what you deserve. And therefore, if you're going to get to heaven, somehow you needed to make the grade, right? To, to cut the mustard. You had to measure up somehow to some sort of a standard or other. And while Protestants were very good at criticizing uh, the Catholic Church for putting too much emphasis on works, on things that you do, most Protestants turned right around and make faith a, gift, a, a work also. If you have faith, then you can be saved. But Paul never says that. He never says, if you have faith, then you deserve to be saved. Because if there's any deserving in it, it's no longer a gift, is it? 
Thank God at Christmas my folks never gave me gifts because I deserved it. Or I would have been in the lump of coal category an awful lot of years. The whole thing about gifts is they are given freely, at least ideally they are, and it's not because you deserve it, it's because the person who's giving it loves you. And that's the whole point Jesus and Paul were trying to hammer through our thick heads. This is a God of love who loves us and gives us the gift freely. And we don't earn it by our works, we don't earn it by our faith. Rather, as Paul says, God gives this to us and it is received. The way you receive the gift is by faith. It's not the way you earn it, it's how you receive it. And for Paul, primarily faith was, in, in his usage, is primarily trust. You trust the promise. God says to you, you are forgiven. You will be with me forever after death. All you can do is say yes or no to the gift. And saying yes to the gift is to trust that it's real and true. And when you realize what unbelievably good news that is, that you don't have to earn salvation, because frankly, if we take a good look at ourselves, who among us really thinks we could ever earn it? deserve it, right? But it's free gift. That's the whole point of grace, right? And that's going to be the theme for this, this, uh, this term in chapel here. It's all about the grace, all about the free gift. And if that isn't good news, I don't know what is. All praise be to God. Amen.